You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. We're continuing through the book of Genesis, and we're looking at, um, at, at who God is, right? This is all entitled Introducing God. And that's what we're doing. And, and this morning, as we, as we look and as you turn there, I want to just, I want to confess something with you. By the way, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, if you didn't know that already. And, and I'm a little bit tired this morning because I got to go to that freshman retreat, which was super fun. But it's always, a, it's always kind of a sad time when you realize you're just not as young as you used to be. And you like you don't bounce back like they were they're like, hey, you going to come and play capture the flag with us. I'm like, what time are you doing that? And like, oh, 1145. I'm like, no, not at all. No, that's just that's dumb. Uh, but anyway, praise God. Continue to pray for our students. OK, those those ones, as a church continue to lift them up. Those students who made decisions for Christ. Um, just keep praying and keep praying over our, over our college staff. And if you don't know them, they're awesome. We, we have an incredible staff here. Um, some awesome people who want to see God glorified. So, all right, uh, this morning as you turn into Genesis 26, hopefully you're there. I want, I want to share something with you. Uh, uh, at one point in my life, I was, I was a runaway, okay? It's kind of a, you know, it's, tra- it's a tragic story, a little, a little tender. I was about six years old at the time. Um, and, uh, and my mom had just disciplined me, probably for no reason, because I was, I was like the best kid you could ever want. Um, I, I never did anything wrong. And so, so I'm sure that her spanking me was just probably because she was a bad mother. Um, I'm kidding. That sounded really bad coming out of my mouth. I'm kidding. She was an awesome mother. Loved, loved my mom. Still love my mom. Um, but, <laughs> but in that moment, okay, in that moment, I was like, okay, if she's going to do that to me, that must mean that she does not love me, right? If she's going to inflict pain into my life, that must mean that she doesn't love me. And so, I, you know, in my six-year-old brain, I'm like, I'm gone. I'm out. I'm done. I'm, I'm done with this relationship. I'm hitting the road. I'm going to make my own way. And so I made it as far as my mom's sewing cabinet in the basement. And what I did was, was I pushed the chair out. I, I hid myself under there. And I even pulled the chair back in so she would never know that I was there. And I was like, I'm really doing it. Right? I'm, I'm really going out on my own. And I realized to run away from home, you actually have to leave home. But, you know, as a six-year-old, this is just what, what goes through my mind. But, and, and, and my mom, she, she was a good mom. She, uh, she didn't leave me there for very long. She came and talked to me and, and explained to me why discipline is important and why, why that reinforced her love for me. But in the mind of a six-year-old, and we can kind of laugh at this. We can kind of chuckle at how, how comical that, that was. But it's the same thing we still struggle with, and it's the same thing we've talked about a, a few times because it's a, it's a pretty common theme throughout Scripture where, where we, see, we see that the presence of God does not mean the absence of trials. The presence of God, it doesn't mean the absence of trials, and yet, and yet that's something that, that continues to come up in our, in our current day and age, in, in our context, in our different stories. We ask the question, like, if I'm experiencing this, then where is God in the midst of this? Because if I'm experiencing trials, that must mean either I'm not doing something right, or it must mean God's absent, or it must mean you fill in the blank. And the reality, as we look at Isaac this morning, and, and it's, it's fun that we get to, we get to look at, at Isaac in Genesis 26, because Isaac was the child of, of promise. He was the one that Abraham and Sarah waited for for so long. 
They waited for him, and they prayed for him, and they, you know, and they kept thinking, God, where are you in this? Because we're not getting pregnant, and, and, and we've tried to do it our own way. You said that was bad, and so we're waiting on you, and they waited, and, and finally Isaac comes on the scene. Finally, and yet this is the only chapter of the Bible that, that this child of promise gets to kind of take center stage. And I think, it's, I think it's important for us to understand that because, again, the main character in this book is not Isaac. The main character in this book is not Abraham, it's not Jacob, it's not David, it's not Peter or Paul or anybody else. It is God. And what we see about God in this chapter is that God is a God who is present. Amen? He is present, and just because trials exist, just because we may go through trials, it does not mean the absence of God, or the presence of God does not mean the absence of trials. You can kind of flip those around, play with that however you want to, but it's, it's the same either way, and that's kind of the big idea this morning. What I want to do is I want to look at what does it look like to live knowing that God is a God who is present even when we are going through trials, even when things are hard, even 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 when things seem like they're not going the way they should go if God was really present. So let's, let's pray together. I'm, I just want to pray before we get into the, the passage. God, I do, I pray that you would give me clarity. God, I pray that um, you would help my brain to wake up. God, I pray that you would just use me. And God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to comprehend what you would have for us. We love you, God. We praise you because we know that you're in this place. We know that you have stuff for us this morning because you're a good God, and it's in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and read. Um, Genesis 26, starting in verse 1, says, Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the, in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. Let, what do he say there? Sojourn in this land, and what? I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish this oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heavens and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offsprings all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. All right, let's just stop there. What we see, first and foremost, is, as, as Isaac kind of takes center stage in the biblical narrative, is the first thing is that there's a famine in the land. The child of promise, the one that everything was waiting for, you know, the, the first time he gets to take center stage, he, he walks into a really difficult situation, and it says it's the same type of famine that was, the, that was in the days of Abraham. And that's referring back to Genesis chapter 12. The second half of 12, we see that there was a famine in the land, and Abraham is trying to figure out, okay, what do I do? What do I do in the midst of this trial? What do I do in the midst of this famine? What do I do when it looks like everything's, everything's just coming unraveled? And he goes down to Egypt, and it doesn't really go well for him. And it's interesting to me that in the midst of the famine, as now Isaac is trying to figure out, what do I do? Because for Isaac now, it's all on him. The responsibilities are on him. He, he's the one that has to figure it out. Abraham's gone. Sarah's gone. He is the head of the house, and all of the weight is on him. And it says that he, he travels to this place called Gerar, and in the midst of the famine, God appears to Isaac. And what does he tell him? He says, Isaac, 
Go to the land that I show you. Follow me in the midst of this famine. Follow me in the midst of this trials. He says, don't go down to Egypt. And I think it's interesting that he specifically says, don't go down to Egypt. Because Abraham in Genesis 12, again, he goes to Egypt. And so God tells Isaac, he says, hey, in the midst of the trial, follow me. Keep your eyes on me. Because why? Because I will be with you. I will be with you. I will bless you. And then he reaffirms this oath that he gave to to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to enlarge your territories. I'm going to enlarge your family. I'm going to do all these things. And not only that, but all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This is a biblical focus, or a, a global focus. The God's saying, I'm going to bless you, but it's not only for you. It's for all peoples of the earth. He says, I'm going to show everyone what it looks like to, be, to, to belong to me. And it's interesting because as I read this, I think, you know, he's God, right? He's God. He's in charge of everything. Couldn't he have just said, hey, Isaac, how's it going? Like, I know, famine, right? That's not good. I'm just going to take care of that. Boop, no more famine. He doesn't do that. And, and we don't exactly know why he doesn't do that, but we know that in the midst of the famine, he doesn't take the famine away, but he brings assurance that his presence is still remaining even in the midst of the trial. He's telling Isaac, hey, just because it's hard, that doesn't mean I'm not here. He goes on. We see what happens in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Okay, stop there. If you've been with us very long, it's like, wait a second, I think we've heard this story before. Like two other times. You would be right. Because in the same way, when when Abraham, Isaac's dad, he first goes down to Egypt in Genesis 12 because of famine. He goes in and he's like, Sarah, look, you're really good looking. And it's you're so good looking, you're going to get me killed. Like, can you tone it down a little bit, right? I don't know. It's like, can you just wear a potato sack? Like, what? I don't know what you need to do, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say you're my sister. That way I don't get killed. And again, in Genesis 20, uh, it, it says that Abraham, he's, he's sojourning through the land. He's, he's going throughout the land. They're nomads. They go where the, the, the grass is greener. And, and they go into this, this city called Gerar. And they, they go into this place. And they, they come in contact with a man named Abimelech. And, and that name is a title, okay, because that was about 100 years before this. So that name is a title of the king of the Philistines, like Caesar or Pharaoh. Okay, and he comes in contact. And what does he do? He's, he's afraid for his life again. He's in a foreign place. He doesn't know the people. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know how they're going to respond. He just looks at his situation, and he's fearful. And so he responds as if there's no God. Really? Isn't that what he does? He responds as if there's no God in his situation. And now we see 100 years later, his son does the exact same thing. And do you think that's coincidence? No. I don't think it's coincidence. I think it's sobering. Because here's the reality. I believe that if we were to look behind us and look at our footsteps, I believe we will see people following in our footsteps. If you're a parent, that's easy to see. You have people following you. If you're a student, you, you can look back. I don't, I don't care who you are. I believe that we can look back at our footsteps and we can see that people are following us. 
The question is, where are they following you? Is it a, is it a good place? Is it a place that's going to, to bring uh, them closer to God? Or is it going to be a place that's going to bring them into, into despair and destruction? When I was a kid, my, my grandma had a, she had an above-ground pool in her backyard. And it was, it was an incredible thing for a kid in summer. She lived like 100 yards from us. Uh, we'd be over there all the time. And I remember one time we were over there. And we were all swimming, no parents or any, anything. And my cousins were there too. And I was kind of the youngest out of the whole bunch. And so they had the idea to start walking. There, there was a ledge, probably, I don't know, is that four inches? Somewhere like that? Um, I don't know, like this big, all right? And, uh, and they started walking around the ledge, around the, you know, and like trying to do this. And as the younger one, I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. I'll do that too. So I get out there, and I start walking, but what I didn't realize is that as they went before me, they made that, that metal ledge really slick because of all the water. And so I get maybe five steps, six steps, and I slip, and instead of slipping and falling into the pool, I slip and fall out of the pool. And I go to catch myself as I fall, and I break my arm right, right there. You know, and I'm laying on the ground screaming because I have a broken arm. Not, it's not like the bone stuck out or anything, but it hurt. And, and I'm laying on the ground screaming, and my, my sister, my older sister, who's about four years older than me, and my older cousins, they're freaking out because they know they're going to get in trouble. So they're like, oh, shh, 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 shh. Just, just come up on the deck, put your arm in the water. That'll make it feel better. So, so I, I don't know how they got me up there, but I'm up on the deck. I'm laying there. I have my arm in the water just crying. My mom shows up. It's kind of at the end of the day. She showed up, she, showing up thinking that she's going to have a nice, relaxing time with the kids in the pool. She shows up, sees the whole situation, me just laying there crying with my arm in the water. I don't know what we explained, but she's like, get in the car. So we get in the car. We go to the hospital. Obviously, my, my arm's broken. See, the reality is we have people that are following us. And when we think about where is our path leading us, where, where are we going? When you look back and you think about where your footsteps are, are leading those who are following you, is it in a better place? I love where, I love where Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Again, in Philippians 4, 9, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What he said, sometimes we look at this and we think, well, Paul was just, he was just stuck on himself. He was just prideful. I don't think he was prideful. He's saying, look, my footsteps, I'm just trying to seek God. So you want to follow in my footsteps? It's not about how good I am. It's about the fact that I'm trying to follow a good God. You want to lead well? Then put your feet on a path that intersects you with God more and more and more because people are following you. And the question is, are they going to be better off because they're in your footsteps? That's sobering, isn't it? No matter who you are, that should be sobering. And so we see Isaac. He goes into this land, and, and because of fear, because he, he's like, okay, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, he acts as though there's no God in his situation. He acts as though he needs to figure it out. He needs, he needs to, to figure out what's going on. And this is, this is what happens in, in verse 8. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, 
I don't know what Abimelech saw when he looked out the window and saw them laughing together. That, that word laughing, it has physical connotations. I don't know if it was like this tickle fight that's like, mm, that's, you know, that's like, that's a tickle fight that brothers and sisters wouldn't do. I don't, I don't know what it was, but I love how he, how he came in and he's like, when, when Abimelech, the, the man who had the title Abimelech in chapter 20 confronts Abraham because kind of the same thing happened, that Abimelech that time took Sarah and made her his wife, and God's like, hey, she's married to him. And Abimelech confronted Abraham. He's like, why would you do this to me? What did I do that you would sin against me in this way? But now when, when Abimelech confronts Isaac, he's saying, why did you do this? You put us in danger. You put us in danger. See, I think it's interesting. The man who God says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless the nations, he was actually a person who was leading others by his choice, by acting in fear like there's no God, by acting in fear, reacting and saying, well, i got to figure this out, by, by not living like God existed, by not living like God was present in the midst of his trials, he was actually putting other people in danger. And I, I think about all the times in my life where, where in the past, I'm, I'm growing in this, but in the past, I've been really, I don't like conflict. Conflict averse. I don't like conflict. And there have been times where I know I need to have conversations with people. I know there was, there was even, um, there's even been a time where I know that the person working under me, the best thing that I could have done for them was to fire them. That's not here. <laughs> that's, not in this, that's not in this context. But I knew the best thing for that person was for me to say, hey, this isn't working out. And yet because, because I had a focus on me, because I had a focus on what they might think of me, because I had a focus on the fact that, you know, I, I just don't want to mess up the relationship. I, I don't want to make this hard for them. I don't, I don't want to, uh, it's, it's going to cause conviction in their hearts. And, and you know, I don't, uh, the bottom line was I was fearful of how they would receive me. I, there was a situation where it felt tense and it felt like it was a trial. And instead of responding the way I knew God wanted me to respond, and instead of acting in the way that God was present in my life and in my situation and in my conflict, I responded with a, with a focus on me. And I actually, I would say I, I didn't put them first and I didn't lead them closer to Christ. It's the same thing Isaac did. See, when we react to fearful situations as though God doesn't exist, we are showing people a true belief that we don't believe God is capable in this situation. We don't believe that God is capable to save us. We don't believe that God is capable to take care of us. We don't, we don't believe in the power of God that we sing about. See, Isaac, he goes on, and, and, and it seems as though he repents. It seems as though it's like we're, we're all good. And after, after a while, we see in verse 12, it says, And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. <clears throat> the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until, until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. I, I love it in, this, in, this, in these four verses, we see how God blessed him, and we see how, how the conflict continued, the trials continued even in the midst of God's blessing. And, and that, that idea of he sowed, he, he's a farmer, he sowed, and he, he reaped a hundredfold, the author is basically saying, look, this is supernatural blessing here. 
God is still present in the midst of his life. God is still present in the midst of his situation, in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his trials. God is still present. God is still working. And yet, and yet we see because of God's blessing on his life, the Philistines envied him. In verse 15 it says, Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. We see in the midst of the blessings of God, we see that the trials continue. We see God is, is blessing him, and yet, yet people become envious of him, and, and, and people are filling in his wells. You see, in, in this climate, in this part of the world, wells brought water. I mean, that's, I guess that's in every part of the world, right? We all, we all know that. If you have a well, you're going to get water. It's not fruit punch. Like, water comes out of that. Water equals life. Especially in this climate. If you didn't have a well, you didn't have life. We see this actually in Genesis uh, chapter 21. It's not up on the screen. But, but Hagar, she, her, you know, the, this whole situation happens. Uh, Sarah's like, send out Hagar. Don't, uh, her and Ishmael, send them out. And they get sent out from the presence of Abraham and his family. And they take a, a wineskin of water. And it says that they get to the end of the water. And she sets her son over under a tree. She makes him sit down and she goes away because she can't bear to watch her son die. Because the absence of water means the absence of life. And yet God, God saw her in that place. God saw her. He responded and said, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. You're not going to die. And as soon as God departed from her, she looked and saw a well. She looked and saw a well. You see, wells equaled water. Water equaled life. And so in this situation, the envy of the people really was, they were, they were trying to end them. They were trying to take away, if, if you have a lot of livestock, you need a lot of water. If you have a lot of people under you, you need a lot of water. And, and they're basically saying, look, we're going to try and undercut you. And, and you see, what, what we see here, the, the question I have for you as we, as we think about this, is this the place that God led Isaac to? Do you think? Is this a place God led Isaac? Because we, we know in the beginning of 26, God says, hey, follow me where I'm going to lead you and I'm going to be with you. Is this the place God led Isaac? What do you think? I think, I won't, not, I won't wait any longer for you to respond. <laughs> I think it was. I think this is where God wanted Isaac to be. And so why all the, why all the trials? Why the envy? Why, the, why people trying to undercut him? You see, I think lots of times in our Christian walk, we have this belief that, that we can, we can um, discern the will of God by what is easy. We, we have sayings like, like uh, you know, God's going to open a door. What does that mean? It, it means if it's, if it's God's will, it'll be easy. You know what? And if a door shuts, Mary will open a window. I don't know how that saying even works, but that's, I, Todd said that's a saying, right? The, the idea is if, if I'm really following God, then he's not going to make it too difficult. If I'm really following God, then the blessings will be there. If I'm really following God, then people won't try and undercut me. If I try, uh, I mean, we do this all the time in our mindsets. I, even moving down here, there, there were a couple people where, where they would say, man, when, when, when we decided to move, God affirmed that decision by selling our house really quickly. God affirmed our decision by, by giving us these connections. God affirmed our decision by giving us these blessings. Now, is that true? 
Yes, I'll give you that one. That's true. God works in those ways. He does. But here's, here's the question. Can we confirm the will of God by just what's easy? No. That's the answer to that one. No. I mean, if you think about Psalm 23, some of you, uh, if you've grown up in church, you've, you've seen this. If you've been to a funeral, you might have heard this. Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, who is the shepherd? God is, right? God is the shepherd. He's, he's leading the psalmist. And look at where he leads him. Go back, go back one real quick. Look at where he leads him. Green pastures, mm, mm, favor, mm, green pastures, right? We all want to be led in green pastures. We all want to be led beside still waters. We all want to be led in paths of righteousness for his name. Mm, yes, praise God, right? But where does he lead right after this? Where does it go from there? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Whoa, 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 wait a second. We don't think about this, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Did did the psalmist here take a wrong turn? Did did he do something where it's like, oh, shoot. Like, I should have, man, I'm on on God's plan B now. I must be because God wouldn't lead me through a valley of the shadow of death. God wouldn't lead me through a place where, where it looks like things are hard. God wouldn't lead me to, through this. I mean, God wouldn't do this, would he? Because this is difficult, and it's frustrating. And if, if trials exist, that must mean the absence of God in my life. And yet, the psalmist doesn't stop in the valley of the shadow of death, does he? What's that last line? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That last line, it, it represents, it talks about, that is, a, that is a victory feast. That's what that is. When, when people would go to war and they would, they would win, they would bring back the captives and there would be this, this, this table set with all kinds of food and the enemies, uh, would, they would sit around the table. And I don't know if it was like just a, a smack talk, like rubbing their nose in it or what it was, but it's like, we won. <laughs> and, and they're sitting around this table and he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is a victory feast. But let me ask you a question. Where did the victory come? Where did the victory come, before or after the valley? After. The victory came after the valley. Where did the victory come? After the valley. See, I think oftentimes we look at these things and we think, why is this so difficult? Why, God, if, if you were really present, why are these trials existing in my life? See, this is where God wanted him to be. And yet, just because God was present, it does not mean that trials were absent. And oftentimes, it is when we go through the valleys that we we experience the victory. And yet, in the midst of the valley, so much of the time, we give up. We give up. We say, well, if this is the case, I'm going to remove myself from your relationship because I didn't sign on for this. It's possible that your victory is coming. God is just leading you through the valley on your way to that victory. See, Isaac, he, he continues on in, in verse 17. 
It says, so Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, this water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. We see that even after they get run out, because that's, that's what happened, that's what Abimelech, when, when he says, You are too mighty for us, um, he says, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. The idea is, we're running you out of town. This wasn't, this wasn't a, a peaceful thing. This wasn't, this wasn't like, ah, eh, you can stay or you can go. It was more like, no, you need to leave. You need to get out of here. And so, so they settle in the valley outside of the city, and yet the herdsmen uh, of the city, they continue after him. And his trials didn't stop even after he left the city. They, they dug a well, and I don't, know how you, I don't know how they dug wells back then. I mean, if, you, if you've seen pictures of this place, it's, it looks really rocky. It's very arid. I mean, I, I would think that this is a very difficult thing. I don't, know, I don't know what tools they had. But this is a very difficult thing. And they, they dig a well. And they're like, oh, water. Okay, water equals life. Great, God is with us. And yet then the herdsmen of that place say, oh, no, 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 this is our well. We actually dug this yesterday. I don't know what they said. But it's like, this is our well. You just found it. And, and he call, he's like, oh, he calls the well, he calls it this, this name Essek, which means contention. And so they go on from there, and they're like, all right, fine, we'll dig another well. So they dug, and, and they found more water. And I just love it that it just so happens every time, it looks like wherever they put their shovel, they find water. I don't know if it's just like, I mean, again, if you look at pictures, water's not just like a foot beneath the surface. Like, water is not just wherever, you know, wherever you put your foot, I bet there's water under you. I don't, that's not the case. But it just so happened to work that every time they dug, there's water. So they do it again. They, they dig, and, and here comes the herdsman again. And so, oh, no, 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 that's our well, too. That's ours. Claimed, right? And, and then uh, Abraham, or Isaac's like, ugh. I, well, okay, I'm going to name this well, then Sitna. Take that. And sitna, it means strife, and it's, even, it's, it's a stronger word than esik. And it seems as though things are ramping up. It's almost like Isaac's like, oh, my goodness. Why don't you guys just leave me alone? And yet he goes from there, and they dig again, and they, they, they find water again. They just so happen to find more water. And he names the well Rehoboth because they get to keep it. And he's like, oh, finally we have, we have space to grow. Finally God has blessed us in this. You see, and I think that I think we can look at this and we say, man, why was Isaac such a pushover? He looks like Ralphie's younger brother in a Christmas story, right? Whenever the, whenever the bullies come, he gets pushed over and he's like, eh, eh. Like that's what Isaac looks like. And whether whether you see him as a as a peacemaker or a or a pushover. I think that when we see this, when we see that, okay, that well got taken, okay, that well got taken, okay, we found more water, and now we get to keep it. I think what we see is not so much uh, based on Isaac's character, but it's based on the fact that God is still present in the midst of his trials. Amen? God is still present in the midst of his trials. Just because there's trials there doesn't mean God is absent. 
And I love it. When we begin to see a God like this, when we begin to understand this is who God is, that he is the God who is there, that he is the God who is active. It wasn't coincidence that that Isaac kept finding water. That's not coincidental. That was God at work in his life. And when we begin to understand God like this, I think, it, I think we see the same, the, same, uh, the same perspective that Jesus had when he was in the garden before the cross. I mean, he's in the garden, and we know the story. He's in the garden, and, and he's saying, God, if there's any way, if there's any way that you can take this cup from me, please, please take it from me. And he's sweating drops of blood. And yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus was no pushover, Right? Jesus was no pushover. I love in, in Matthew 15, he outright calls the Pharisees hypocrites. In Matthew 15, I think, I think we have it up on the screen, 12 through 14, he calls them hypocrites. And it says, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? That's how I hear them saying this. He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. That's Jesus. You know, I don't, when, when the disciples were like, you know that you offended them, Jesus. He's not like, oh, my goodness. Oh, I didn't realize. Well, let's just make this right. No, he, he didn't do that. He's saying, no, the truth offends. And they're blind guides. So let them alone. In, in uh, John chapter 2, I love this story, 13 through 16, where it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I love when when Jesus goes into the temple and he sees those who have power oppressing those who don't. When he sees those who have power oppressing those who are trying to, they're, they're trying to interact with God. They're trying to experience God. It says that he made a whip. He made a whip. <laughs> I love that. Like I was talking, I was reading this with a guy who had never read the Bible before. Uh, it's been quite a while ago, and he is like, "Are you kidding? That was Jesus." That was Jesus as like, yeah. I mean, can you imagine, like, as he's looking at people, in my mind, he doesn't just grab things and just start hitting people. He's like, what can I make a whip out of, you know? And it's like, he picks, I don't know if he braids it and makes a sturdy handle, and he's just looking at people as he's, you know, as he's doing it. It's like, you, this is for you. It's like, it's a premeditated whipping is what he's doing. Jesus was no pushover. When it came to standing up for those who were being oppressed, he was no pushover. When it came to, to truth, he was no pushover. But I believe that the reason for that, not only because he was God, but he believed in a God and he had a relationship with a God who he knew in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his darkest moments, he knew that God was present and his plans were better than anything that he could come up with. There was no other way but God's way. See, and when we begin to interact with a God who is present in our lives, I believe we can walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. Well, we don't have to fret. We don't have to. I, Isaac, I'll, I'll even say it like this. Isaac was mighty. I mean, that's what Abimelech said. He says, you got to go out from here because you're more mighty than we are. I think he could have taken care of a few herdsmen. When they come up and say, oh, this is our well, he could have been like, nope, take care of them. Boom, dead. But he didn't. And I think we see in that, we see a character of a God who is present where he's saying, hey, I've got you. I've got, I've got this situation. 
Will you follow me in it? Will, will you follow me? In, in verse 23, I think we see this played out even further. It says, from there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. He goes to this place called Beersheba, and, and, and God appears to him again in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his frustration, in the midst of his contention and conflict. God appears to him again and says, hey, Isaac, I'm with you. I've got you. Yes, I know things are hard. Yes, I know it's frustrating. Yes, I know there's strife. But will you continue to follow me in the midst of this? And I love the placing, too, because this place called Beersheba most likely, this was the same place where about 80 years before this, he went with his father with, with wood for a sacrifice. He followed his father up this hill, and he asked his father, Father, where's the, where's the sacrifice that we're going to give to God? And his father says, God will provide. And they get to this place. And he allows his father to bind his hands. He allows his father to lay him down on the altar. And as he watches his father raise a knife into the air, ready to plunge it into his chest or ready to kill him with it, he hears the voice of God saying, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. And they look over and there's a ram in the thicket. There's a ram in the bushes and they take the ram. And in Isaac's place, God provides a sacrifice. That's what happened in this place in Beersheba. That probably stuck with him, didn't it? Don't you think? That probably made an impact. That probably made an impact that at the, one of the most crazy times in his life, he watched God do some incredible things. Guys, and, and from there, I, I love it where it says in, in verse 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with a, okay, did you catch that? When Abimelech, they're in, they're in this place, Beersheba, they're in this place, and, and when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, the advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and, and let us make a covenant with you. After that, they, they, they do it. They make the covenant. They eat, this, they eat this banquet meal, and then in the morning, they make it official, and then, uh, and then Abimelech, he goes out, he, he goes back home, and then right after that, it says in verse 32, that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Sheba, that's the name oath. That, that's the name covenant. It's, it's, this, it's this idea that God affirmed his presence and his covenant through the giving of water again. And I love that this man, Abimelech, with this title king, comes out, to, comes out to Isaac, a guy that he pushed out and says, look, we know God's with you. So here's the thing. We want to be with you too. We, we want a covenant with you because we know you have a covenant with God. See, guys, when we respond, when we respond to situations and trials and fear as if God is present, other people see that, don't they? Other people are walking in our footsteps. They see that, hey, God is with that guy. God is with her. There is something different because they don't respond to trials the way I do. They don't respond to situations with fear the way I do. There's something different there. 
And Abimelech says, I want what you have. I want to be, be in covenant with you because you're in covenant with God. It's the same thing that we see throughout in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, in the same way, let people see, not necessarily you, but through your good works, through how you respond to trials and temptations and frustrations and fear, when you respond as though God is present, what you're doing is you're saying, hey, let me introduce you to the one who has control of this. Let me get out of the way and let me show you who, who I serve. That's what we do. And the, and the question this morning for us, as we, as we go through this story, and we're going to see that the trials aren't over for Isaac. That end, it talks about his son Esau chooses some wives and that brings more frustration. The trials aren't over for Isaac. But the reality is that God is still present and that the presence of trials does not imply the absence of God. So the question this morning is, how do you respond to opposition? Where are you at? What's going on in your life? Maybe, maybe you have at this moment, maybe you have frustrations at work. Maybe you have frustrations with kids or, or your parents or, or these other things that you want to respond out of fear. You want to respond as though there's no God. But here's the thing. On that hill, Isaac got to see God provide for him in some mighty ways. And on that same hill about a 1,000 years later, we see in the pages of Scripture where God provides for us also in his son, Jesus Christ. It's the same place. It's the same place. You and I, we've been provided for. Through the blood of Jesus, we have been provided for. So my question is, what are you going through this morning? What's your trial? What's your frustration? What's the fear? Is God truly present? I want to I end by just reading Romans 8. I want to end with this. Paul says to the church in Rome, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is the God who's present. Amen? Let me, let me pray for us. God, I praise you that you are present. And God, I don't know what trials are, are represented in this place. I don't, I don't know what people are going through. I don't know what baggage. I don't know what's going on. But God, I do know that you're present. God, I do know that you, are, that you are here, and God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who walk in that reality, not only so that we can see your blessings, but so that those around us can see the blessing of what it looks like to follow you in the midst of trials. God, help us to be those people. Praise you for, for, praise you for, for your provision for us. Praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. Help us to live in light of that, and it's in your name.
Amen.